Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. A few years ago, we ran a special winter episode on the Snow Maiden, an adored figure from Slavic folklore. Today, we travel to my homeland, Austria, for an encounter with the Krampus. Each December, this devil clad in sheepskin and goat horns wanders the alpine valleys of Bavaria and Tyrol. The Krampus lurks in other parts of Austria as well, and some of his cousins pop up even further afield in Eastern Europe, but the specter of this dark Christmas legend is strongest in the mountains. You might have met some version of him in the 2015 Hollywood horror movie Krampus, or my personal favorite, the 2010 Finnish film Rare Exports. But the real story of the Krampus is even better than the movies. Here to tell us all about it is Al Reidenauer, host of the dark folklore podcast Bone and Sickle, and the author of the book The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Thanks for joining me to make the Yuletide anything but bright, Al. (laughs) My pleasure. So how did you first get interested in the Krampus as an American? Well, I was a German student in uh, college, among other things, and my family, it was German, but we too far removed for that to be really much of an influence. I think it was mainly because I was a horror kid. I grew up like a lot of kids in the 60s loving horror movies. And uh, I also had an interest in folklore. And so I had an opportunity to travel to Europe around this season. And I realized that I knew there was such a thing as the Krampus. And I started to sort of try to dig up information on it. There wasn't that much available. And it became, so it sort of started as a research for a trip. Um, and then it kind of just, I couldn't stop myself, and I kept reading about it and uh, wanting to experience more. Yeah, I mean, so tell us what you learned. Like, how far back does the Krampus tradition go? Where does he come from? I mean, I grew up with him, but I actually knew very little about him beyond just, like, the general markers. So your book was quite enlightening. How far back he goes is always a little bit hard to answer because uh, there's there are assumptions that he's an ancient pagan figure, and in fact... He has ancient roots, but for the what we know of as the Krampus, uh, really only the word itself only started to be used in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But um, he's sort of representative of a whole class of figures that go much, much further back. Uh, as early as the 1400s, there were costume figures that circulated around this time of year and either thre- threatened or begged householders for treats or warn them of misbehaving kids or servants or things like that. So uh, it's kind of hard to say, and it, it, there are so many threads that lead into it. Uh, in fact, the oldest version of one of these characters that has, I would say, enough of the traits to class it as a, a near relative is the uh, person that start being mentioned in the 1100s. So you could say it's ancient, or you could say it's from the early 1900s. <laughs> Right. Where my mom grew up in Niederösterreich, which is right on the Czech border, um, the costumes are not as elaborate as some of the ones pictured in your book. But, you know, it's a distinguishable human man sort of smeared with soot. And she still shudders. She's like a grown woman. And she still shudders every time she talks about the chains (laughs) that this, you know, figure carried around. But what generally characterizes the Krampus, whether he's in Tyrol or, you know, my mom's village, like what makes a Krampus a Krampus? Well, what we think of today is uh, 
largely uh, was sort of set in stone by the fad of the Krampus postcards, the Krampuskarten, which uh, circulated in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And again, that's about the time the, the word started being used universally for this thing that didn't have, that had different regional names. So, uh, and these things, these postcards were drawn by people in the cities, not in the uh, alpine farming areas. So they're kind of drawing a lot more from theater traditions than what the actual costumes looked like. So there's kind of a, a, a Krampus that's uh, the figure as impersonated in, in sort of folk rituals. And then there's the sort of uh, theatrical idea, the sort of a more, more literary idea, almost what a Krampus should be. So what we think of today, uh, in fact, if you think of the postcards, you think of a sort of goat man with goat legs often and hoofs and a basket full of screaming kids on his back and horns on his head and uh, wearing chains and carrying switches. So obviously the villagers uh, impersonating the character back in the old days didn't have goat hooves or goat, goat legs. So that's definitely a, a bit of artistic imagination. But the goat figured in partly because of his association with the Christian devil, but also they were goat and sheep farms that where these creatures had come from. So uh, the character of the Krampus was determined by what was available in the day-to-day life uh, of the people living there. Uh, the So they had animal hides, they had those sheep and goat skins, and something not really featured in the postcards were the uh, bells that they wore. And those were all the livestock bells that weren't being used over the winter. So, and then this, the switches they might carry were, that's how you cleaned your soot in your fireplace. It was just a fireplace broom, basically, or for hitting your kids if they misbehaved. So all of those things were just kind of part of day-to-day life. You mention the idea that the Krampus your mother encountered was just had his face just blackened with soot is interesting because that would have been what the earlier Krampuses looked like. The carved the beautiful carved wooden mask that I was I'm so like I was so happy to just to be able to collect photos of them. I don't even have a single wooden mask. I have lots of replicas and a lot of the masks now are made of resin. They even make them of aluminum. But those beautiful masks actually only uh, started appearing in the uh, 1920s and 30s. So again, how, what we think of is this, when I first saw those masks, I thought they were some kind of, kind of uh, ancient folk art form that was, you know, you see them and you think it's some kind of ancient, ancient Germanic art form or something. But they're actually, the, the funniest thing is um, the carver who made a name for himself had studied art at the uh, university in Munich. And that was the, and so it's in the 30s when like Picasso and primitivism is holding sway. So it's almost like a, it, like a lot of the pagan traditions, and also you see this when they were recreated in England, when they kind of revived them, there's an effort to make it seem older than it is. So I think it was uh, the artist that influenced what the mask looked like was in some ways consciously uh, kind of emulating um, an older form or something that felt not of the 20th century. So anyway, those masks uh, that we know um, are not as quite as old as we think, but then the oldest form would have been somebody taking the ash out of the fireplace and covering his face just to make himself unrecognizable, or the, they would take old coats that were fur-lined and turn them inside out so the fur showed. So it was very, it's kind of a very slapdash affair. You see old uh, photos also from the 20s and 30s with their paper mache, or even there's an old kind of cloth masks, people even bag, like a bag over the head with eye holes cut. So what the Krampus looks like is, uh, you know, it, it was it evolved from what was available. Um, I always make a point of telling people that the Krampus is... Uh, He's just a boogeyman, and he's just the boogeyman that happens to apply in the winter months. So there's all these Kinderschreck uh, figuren, uh, child fear figures that are used uh, that were used in German-speaking countries. 
So he is, he's one of many and, uh, he, his, uh, the idea of carrying children or carrying away children in a basket is there's a image of this, uh, Perst character I was talking about from the 1700s, basket full of screaming kids on her back. And then there's a figure just, they call him the Zakman, the man at the sack who was parents with threatening their kids saying the sack man's going to come and carry you off if you don't go to bed or whatever. So a lot of these things, uh, you know, they just kind of came together and, and the postcards definitely made it an international phenomenon. And this is like, these postcards came out when the Austro-Hungarian Postal Service was like the first major uh, international postal service. So that was a, a great way to make, make the image uh, popular and the whole phenomenon popular, actually, beyond those alpine regions where people had ever seen someone dressed up as a Krampus. Yeah, my mom talked about the Krampus carton and sending them when she was a kid in the 50s and 60s. But I think slapdash probably best describes the tradition in their village, which is, you know, not nearly as intense as they do it elsewhere. Um, I was just stunned by the intricacy of the costumes in Tyrol and their totally wild tradition of the Krampuslauf with this whole troop. Usually I think of St. Nicholas and I think of the Krampus, but there's a lot of other people in there and there's a lot more involved. So like what happens on these Krampuslaufen in Tyrol? Yeah, so the the Krampuslauf or the Krampus run, or just it doesn't mean they run actually, but it's just the sort of the word you use for a run or a walk or whatever. That grew out of the older tradition of the house visits when you'd have just the St. Nicholas figure with several Krampuses and maybe someone dressed as an angel helping and somebody carrying his uh, sweets for him, his treats for the kids. But you'd have these uh, groups. There'd be lots of these little groups. It'd be, you know, every, like, you know, a family would have their own group that would visit some relatives. So you'd have all these groups crisscrossing the town. And eventually people would, like the kids, maybe the older teens and stuff would come out just to watch them or to kind of, have fun chasing them and being chased by the Krampuses. So this grew into this more organized thing where a city would designate a street where this is going to happen or just sort of evolve more organically. So uh, our notion that the Krampus is there to quote-unquote punish bad children, that's kind of all falls by the wayside with these runs because, as I was saying, even in the example with the older kids coming out on the streets or the teenagers, it's not about the whole Nicholas thing is set aside. It's not it doesn't have that same sort of... Uh, edifying function is more it's more just for fun generally in austrian they don't really carry switches again there's a lot of discrepancies between the postcard krampus the sort of classic graphic image we have of it and how they're impersonated uh they don't usually carry the switches they'll carry a soft kind of whip made out of a horse tail which you know it can be soft or not soft depending on how hard they swing it but of course it's winter so people are very padded with clothing and they're in practice, they kind of will hit around the shins or something that's they're never doing hitting around the face or anywhere exposed. So the Krampuses will swat people. In fact, it's so divorced from the idea of being punished, it's kind of considered good luck to be hit by one. There's a whole mythology around the blows as being luck bringing. There's a thing also where like the older kids or teenage boys who have to want to prove themselves will kind of taunt the Krampuses and the, the as a performer, they're when they walk go down the street, they're kind of scanning the audience to see. Who, who wants to engage and who doesn't. And they're also very, uh, in my experience, they're also very careful about little children. I, I have no doubt. I know I've heard from many people, the, the visits of the Krampuses to the house is very scary. But as far as swatting kids and stuff, um, it's probably different than it used to be. But it's, uh, it's very judicious and carefully, uh, selectively apl- applied. 
the Krampus love still happens on December 5th. And I think my cardinal sin in, in airing this episode late is that I'm, you know, contributing to the misconception that it's <laughs> it's Christmas. Um, but it's it's supposed to be December 5th, which is the eve before St. Nicholas's Day and the 6th. But I don't ever, you know, remember hearing about the Krampus without St. Nicholas. And um it's, you know, still a strong association, like St. Nick is still around, but but I'm totally unfamiliar with how these two got together. You know, like when did St. Nicholas, who's like so immaculately dressed and his like beautiful red bishop's attire and his little cravat, um, and of course, like the, the staff, how did he pick up this like dark sooty companion with horns? So as I was saying, there's a whole uh, family of customs that involve going door to door in costume. Uh, basically begging, actually related to Celtic Halloween customs. Uh, kind of depends when your winter started. The Celtic winter started earlier than what was uh, later regarded as the beginning of winter. In fact, uh, November 11th was the first day of winter, so uh, <laughs> there's even some customs associated with that day. But there are all these different customs that involve costumes, going door to door, and they tend to be rowdy. Um, it wasn't always that the householders were expecting them. You read about, you know, the old Halloween in America and how there were pranks and stuff involved, you know, just vandalism. A lot of it resembled that more, where there was, uh, it was kind of a custom that needed a little taming, according to, uh, you know, city elders and people in the church and so forth. And so uh, it's kind of understood that uh, Nicholas was added to these customs, these uh, costumed uh, people with soot on their faces or fur coats uh, turned inside out or... Uh, wearing old livestock dolls. He was a chaperone. But there is a tradition on St. Nicholas Day of, uh, this goes back into the Middle Ages, actually. Uh, someone would dress as St. Nicholas and distribute gifts. And so there's there's that Catholic school tradition. And then there's, uh, in the mystery and miracle plays, there'd be devils that have sort of a comic function that would run around the crowd and cause mischief. So the Nicholas plays were... Uh, kind of a loose cluster, a cycle of plays that could, if you perform them all, it would go on for hours. Uh, and it would be seen, it would actually didn't have too much to do with St. Nicholas or his, the sort of saint, the uh, anecdotes from his life. It was a, kind of a conglomeration of things like everyman plays, uh, kind of, some of them were kind of rustic, uh, funny kind of things with peasants uh, being uh, obnoxious. <laughs> and then some of them are more pious. And there was a, uh, one of them, at least, would have uh, St. Nicholas talking to parents about their children, and the devils would come out uh, in that. So that was uh, an actual kind of folk theater that would be performed. And I think what happened was uh, it became more of a theater of the people, or more kind of spontaneously organized, without uh, some of the structure that the original plays had. These plays go back to the, I think the 1700s is what we have. They didn't write them down. It was usually memorized, so it's kind of hard to know. And there's still a few towns that perform the whole plays. And in fact, when the Nicholas visits homes, there's some rhymed lines that were from uh, the old Nicholas plays, uh, which are all performed in rhyme. So the Nicholas figure does go back a while, and I think it's just a, a happy combination of the fun of the devils uh, kind of frolicking and being mischievous around the house and, the, you know, the role that Nicholas could play with uh, <laughs> helping with the parents keep their kids under control or encouraging what they consider the you know good behavior. Yeah, I love the combination, and I'm I'm glad that 
you know, this dark figure from my childhood is coming back. And, you know, he's still around in Austria. Like, I see photos on Facebook of my cousins being visited by the Krampus. That's really good to hear because the house visits part of it versus the street run, the Krampus runs, are kind of dying out. I guess a lot of it's going to be family photos that maybe you don't see, but I do hear that it's pretty uncommon. Generally, it's more the Krampus run and the Nicholas figures being left aside, too. Mm. No, it's both of them. This one, at least. I mean, the mm-hmm. Krampus was definitely slapdash. He was wearing Converse's, but he was recognizably <laughs> the Krampus. Um, you know, as I said in the intro, we saw Krampus in theaters in the U.S., like a, a Hollywood movie, and then Rare Exports from yeah. Finland, which are, you know, not exactly the same thing, mm-hmm. but it seems like we have like an inflection point today with interest in the Krampus in the same way that there was an inflection point like in the 1920s with bringing back this folklore or even earlier with bringing in Nicholas to chaperone these weird pagans. (laughs) So why do you think the Krampus has come back, you know, both abroad and in its countries of origin? Well, he didn't ever go away in this in certain regions. I think he's definitely embraced for different reasons. If, you know, in America, the Krampus was embraced as a sort of counterculture thing. And, you know, in the Alps, he's extremely traditional so much so that i have an austrian friend who uh is from vienna and is very dismissive of the whole thing so i think it's considered too traditional his kind of austrian hillbillies in his opinion but in america it's you know it was kind of iconoclastic and the funny thing is also in europe um films and fantasy media has influenced what's practiced over there i i think people want a tradition they want to have something that's repeated every year because there's some just basic human need for that but i think they are uncomfortable using older traditions because our culture is not very traditional anymore so i think people are a bit confused about what they want we have links in the show notes to al ridenauer's book the krampus and the old dark christmas as well as his podcast bone and sickle co-hosted with sarah chavez if you're looking for more winter folk tales, there's also a link for the Snow Maiden podcast and my favorite Krampus movies. This is our last episode of 2021. I'll see you in 2022. I hope it's a better year for all of us. Till then, take care and stay sharp.